Welcome back to Bible time. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now that made no sense because you've got to have the context. You've got to have the rest of the verse with it. That's verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Father, in Jesus' name, open your word to us. Please help us drive back the devil in Jesus' name. Lord, don't help us drive back the devil. Lord, you know I didn't mean that. But for the sakes of these praying with me, I say this, Father, to clarify it that we might pray with one heart and one mind and ask you father to drive back the devil yourself because you are able and you are worthy lord say the word only and it shall be done lord we pray that your gospel would go out in power in jesus name amen we are getting near the end times Praise the Lord. Today we're looking at this concept of discipleship, the need for discipleship. Lord willing, um, not sure how far we'll get. We may look at the, these as individual points. We may look at them as individual studies, but we're going to look at the proximity, the providence and proximity of discipleship. We're going to look at the produce of discipleship. We're going to look at the purpose of discipleship. What is discipleship? Discipleship is taking someone and leading them and teaching them so that they can be like you. Now, discipleship can be good and discipleship can be bad. If you are a disciple of a wicked heretic, will you be will you turn out good? No. You'll turn out like the wicked heretic. That'd be bad. But if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, will you turn out good? Yes, if you truly follow Jesus Christ, if you're truly His disciple, then you'll turn out just fine. And here we're looking at First um, Thessalonians 3.10, the need for discipleship. And ultimately, the true, follow, the true one single master that we have is Jesus Christ, and we must follow Him. We've made this statement before that true Christians don't need discipleship, and that is true. But at the same time, Christians do need discipleship. You say, how can both of those things be true? Well, we'll explain that as we get in here. Here, all of the joy that he had in verse 9 flows into this expression of night and day praying exceedingly. We saw that when we started with verse 10, and it didn't really make any sense. But if you look at the end of verse 9, there's a semicolon there. The, there's no period. It's the, it's the middle of a, of a question, actually. And verse 10 ends with a question mark. Now, if you leave, you can read it as a standalone sentence. That's why there's a semicolon there. But if you read it as a standalone sentence then you kind of just naturally want to put a period at the end of it and it's basic and it's a question mark not a period and that's really interesting because the need for discipleship really is a question mark too how bad you need a discipler is directly relevant to how well you're following the master Christ and most of us struggle with that most of us struggle with following Christ there's a few people in history that God has specifically and specially touched that have of um, followed Christ so closely that it has seemed like they didn't need a disciple or, or a discipler, someone to follow in the faith. But if you dig into their story, almost without fail, you'll find a holy um, mother, a holy grandmother, somebody that instilled faith in them at a very young age. Fanny Crosby, a great hymn writer, was powerful in the faith, in her, and her hymns reflect deep doctrinal truths and are filled with the glories of divine help and God helping her in the writing of her hymns. And she had a very close walk with God, apparent from her hymn writing. And the, and the beautiful, beautiful poetry that would flow from her heart as a spring of living water flowing from her heart. But we find that Fanny Crosby did not get there on her own either. She believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as a very little girl. But even then, her mother spent great amounts of time teaching her Bible and helping her memorize Bible before her mother died. And whenever her family died, she always treasured and cherished the Bible. And she loved the Word of God, but that was instilled in her at a young age. We know that Moses, who seems to be one of the greatest characters in the Bible, who stood alone for God, he didn't really seem to have anybody. There was, there was no priesthood. There was no system in Israel. It was a patriarchal system. And there was nobody to really train Moses to be the leader that God wanted him to be. 
But we find that the Bible puts uh, Moses' parents in Hebrews 11 that they, through faith, defied the commandment of the king. And there, Moses' mother was given a little, a short space of time while Moses was still almost an infant, and she spent that time apparently very wisely. And judging by her faith that she was able, willing to defy the king's commandment in order to obey God, we can see that she had faith in God, and it's easy to basically ascertain or guess that she had instilled in Moses a deep faith in God. The Bible says by faith Moses when he came to years was come to years refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. He got that somewhere. Moses Moses was discipled even for a short time by his mother, but perhaps one of the least discipled of all, because after that he was raised in Pharaoh's household and trained, as Stephen said in Acts 7, in all the wisdom and learning of the Egyptians. And with that, all the filth and all the vile affections and all the demonology and idolatry and Satanism that would have gone along with it, yet Moses chose God. And Moses chose to follow God. But by and large, most people need someone to pastor them. Most people need someone to disciple them. And most people that say that they don't are the ones that need it the most and are lifted up in pride most of the time. If you go to a lot of times the standalone figures that seem to stand out in history, pay attention here today. You pay attention here. We're on new ground for us. You need to pay close attention. A lot of times the standalone characters that really seem to gleam in history that stood up above all, like, um, for example, Martin Luther might be one that somebody would um, point out because of all of the deception and fraud and lies that he was taught his whole life. And as he finally came to age and stood for faith, we see him standing with such power and with such zeal against the Roman Catholic Church. But if you find, if you dig, as we've recently been looking into his biography, my family has been. <clears throat> As we've been going through his biography, we've been finding out that there were men in his life that had a significant impact in his life towards God and that to a degree discipled him. His father had extreme reservations about the monastic way of life. Even though his father was a Roman Catholic of that day, his father had extreme reservations and really did not have any respect for the monasteries and for the Aramites, the the hermit priests and all this kind of stuff that was going on in the Catholic Church. And he called a lot of it into question. He also resisted Luther's desire to join the monastery. And at the height of Luther's self-righteousness in becoming a priest, and went sitting at the table at his ordination with his father and all of the priests helping him to beseech his father to see the wisdom of his decision to become a priest. His father stood, plain, common working man that he was, on the word of God and said, Have you never read, son, the scripture saith, Honor thy father and thy mother? And Luther said that those words pierced to his soul, and he never did shake them. (coughs) And there God unsettled Luther, unsettled him in his self-righteousness, and caused him to seek the Lord even further through his father. There was also another monk that had gotten um, a degree of an understanding of salvation by grace through faith that had begun to encourage all the monks to read the Bible. And I believe his name was Spalatin, if I remember right, but I can't remember now. In any case, that monk had a, had a great deal of influence over Luther in discipling him and in fact in winning him to Christ and there'd be other people in his life. And so most people would tell you of people that helped them. The people Luther would name might even surprise some people because many of them didn't even agree with what they considered his extreme reaction to the heresies in the Roman Catholic Church. But in any case, Luther had, a, had some discipling. Moses had some discipling. 
discipling. Fanny Crosby had some discipling. And the list could go on and on and on. Here the Thessalonican church had been such a powerhouse church. They'd been such a jumpstart church. Three Sabbath days, Paul had reasoned with them in the synagogues with the Jews and had the time in between to teach the, the people that had gathered and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh and died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day and taught them some of the basics of the gospel. But he had had no time to truly disciple them and to establish them in the faith. So here, while he's giving thanksgiving and joy, while he's running out of words, he's, he's speechless in his gratitude to Almighty God for the grace that has been bestowed on the Thessalonican church that they're standing in the face of opposition and persecution and all of these difficult things that have come upon them, separation, persecution, isolation, temptation, and the faith that they had has been sounded abroad throughout all of Achaia and all of Macedonia. The Apostle Paul, even though he sees their faith and even though his faith, their faith causes him to run out of words to even express his gratitude, and it says, the joy wherewith we joyed for you. So that you can possibly even imagine the Apostle Paul shouting hallelujah or the equivalent and leaping with joy and tears of joy running down his face. Yet at the same time and in the same sentence, in the same breath, he expresses his deep desire and his prayer to perfect that which is lacking in their faith and to do it face to face. And this is very significant. This is the need for discipleship. Now a child may grow on potatoes and rice with no milk, no vegetables, and no meat. And in the sense of survival, that child may live and reach maturity, may even have a family and raise children, and even live to possibly a somewhat old age and die, and then, and therefore not really need meat or fruit or vegetables or milk. But that child will thrive physically if he gets the meat and the fruit and the vegetables and the milk. <coughs> And this is really the difference. Now, on the one hand, true believers don't need follow-up and they don't need discipleship. They don't need follow-up and they don't need discipleship. 1 John um, chapter 3. Is it chapter 3 or chapter 2? Where's the verse where it says the unction, the anointing? There we go. Chapter 2, 1 John 2, 27. He says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. So here the apostle John says to the church that there is an anointing that they have received that will teach them all things, and that that is truth, it is no lie, and that through this anointing they shall abide in Him. And here is the longevity, the perpetuity, the um, survival, the endurance, the continuance of the saint. And it is through the anointing of the Holy Ghost of God that the saint continues, not through any works of righteousness. The Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And it doesn't say that that changes when you get saved. If you're working works of righteousness in your own strength, you are still producing filthy rags as a saved person. All our righteousnesses will ever amount to is filthy rags. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we must be filled with the Holy Ghost, obedient to the commands of Christ, walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, anointed by God, taught of God, and obedient to that which we taught. And he said, if ye abide in me, ye shall bring forth much fruit. Go to John 15, which is um, that area. We've got to try and move here and keep moving today. Try and get all this in. <coughs> John um, chapter 15 Actually, 14 there, uh, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So the anointing is the supernatural revelation of God's knowledge to my heart. 
The anointing. What is the anointing? Well, it says the anointing teacheth you all things. And it says here that the Holy Ghost teacheth you all things. And we know that the anointing is not the Holy Ghost, but it is what the Holy Ghost does. So while the Holy Ghost is the noun, the anointing is the verb. And the anointing is the operation of the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. So the Holy Spirit of God that moves in and indwells the believer upon salvation that indwells the, the, the believer upon salvation and baptizes the believer into the body of Christ upon salvation, that Holy Spirit of God anoints the believer, which is to teach the believer to pour out the revelation of the presence and the power of Almighty God in the heart of the believer and make it real to them in a way that they can testify to its truth and veracity. <clears throat> that anointing is everything to a minister. That anointing is absolutely everything. It's the difference between dead letter killing death, the cold icy wind of orthodox religion, and the um, and I'm not talking about Coptic Christians. I'm talking about orthodoxy in the sense of that which is right, that which is true, which is not Coptic Christians either. But orthodoxy is dealing with that which is the received, true, fundamental doctrines of salvation that have been passed on from the apostles on. That's orthodoxy but orthodoxy without anointing is a chilly cold wind from the south pole and it comes up or from the north you take your pick but it comes up or it comes down and it chills to the bone and it kills everything it touches but orthodoxy with the anointing the apostles doctrine the true doctrines of the word of God with the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God on the teacher and the anointing proceeding from the teacher to the people in the class or in the church who are then being anointed by the Holy Ghost with revelation of truth of the Holy Scriptures is a life-giving stream, waters of a uh, fountain of living waters. <coughs> Excuse me. So here's the comforter. The comforter does the anointing and the anointing teaches you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He anoints you. And then look at chapter 15 I, of John. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing." So here is the anointing of God, which comes through the abiding. The anointing of God comes through as the branch connects to the root, as the as the vine connects to the branch. He says, I am the vine, um, ye are the branches. As the vine is connected to the branches, and through the vine goes the life-giving nutrients that are pulled up from the earth and then distributed throughout the branches that naturally produce fruit in the branches. So it is with God, and so it is with the believer. And if you abide in Christ, you will bring forth much fruit. There's no doubt about it. And so in this sense, you don't need anybody. It could be you and Christ. As we've said before, you could be sitting on a desert island and you could have a little page fall out of an airplane window and flip down there and land on the beach next to you while you're trying to cook up a crab that you caught for dinner. And you could pick up that little page and read that Jesus died and was buried and rose again to save you from your sins and play just in that moment your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you could be born again by the power of God and the Holy Spirit would indwell you and baptize you into the body of Christ. You'd be a child of God, a joint heir with Christ. You'd, even if you had no copy of the Bible, no commentaries, no Bible school, no church to go to, no human fellowship and you could live on that desert island and you could die on that desert island 60 years later and you would go to heaven. Now you you would be like a little baby in the faith 
Now, we're to be like children as when, we, when it comes to believing what God said. But we're supposed to be men in understanding. The Bible says, be not children in understanding. In understanding, it says, be men. And there's a growth that needs to take place. There's a growth that needs to happen. Just like you can live on those potatoes or rice, but you can't really thrive on them. You, the child that gets the milk and the vegetables and the meat with their potatoes and rice is going to do a lot better. Discipleship is not needed for survival. But discipleship is needed for, (coughs) excuse me, discipleship is needed for propagation and continuation. For the faith to be passed on in strength and power, there needs to be discipleship. Discipleship is necessary. It's one of the reasons God gave pastors. A pastor as a shepherd is a discipler above all other things. He feeds the flock. He feeds the flock. Now, Paul here in the letter to Thessalonians, he says, as they were joying over this great miracle of the providence of God and the preservation of the Thessalonican church, as they were rejoicing that God had kept the church at Thessalonica from falling apart, Even in the same breath, as he's running out of words to thank God for what has happened, he is not out of words to beseech and entreat God for face time with the church so that he can perfect that which is lacking in their faith. And here he notes a lack in their faith. Now, had not their faith, listen to me, didn't their faith survive separation? Didn't their faith survive persecution? Didn't their faith survive isolation? Didn't their faith survive temptation? Didn't their faith sound forth through all of Macedonia and Achaia? Weren't they well known throughout the whole region for their faith in Almighty God? They were. In fact, many churches today would love to have half of the commendations that the Apostle Paul had given here to the church at Thessalonica. Many churches would be happy to get even half of these commendations to hear the preacher say something half as nice as what he said about uh, this church at Thessalonica. But he says here they've got a lack in their faith. Now, it's possible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be indwelt with the Holy Spirit and still not know anything about God, about doctrine. To know a little bit, but not much. And because of that, to be lost in a, not lost and far from God, but to, but to be far from a usable condition. And go to 1 Peter 1.7. 1 Peter 1.7. 1 Peter's in the New Testament. Does that help you? <laughs> Amen. 1 Peter 1.7. He says here um, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with the fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory and at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There in verse 6 he said, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now do you see how that's almost a direct parallel passage to ours in Thessalonians? Over in Thessalonians, pay attention please. Over in Thessalonians, you have Paul rejoicing greatly, though for a season they're in heaviness due to their manifold temptations, and rejoicing in the midst of this trial of their faith. And then we find Paul saying that their faith needed some work. So here the trial of their faith refines the gold and it is, gives glory to God and it's more precious than gold that perisheth. And this Thessalonican church has all of that, but what are they lacking? They're lacking some perfection in faith. You know, there's, there are some good churches as, that are full of faith and zeal for God, but they're lacking some instruction. They're lacking some basic truth. They're lacking some understanding of Bible doctrine, and it's hindering them from growing. Go to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see something here, that God sends these tribulations to grow us in our faith. Now, when your tribulation comes and you stand through it, it proves that you've got faith. But there's other things that are going to come besides just tribulations. Romans 5 and verse 1. My throat's about raw. Y'all pray for me. 
Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So So here we have a process here. This faith gives us access. This faith gives us justification. This faith gives us peace with God. And we have access into this grace wherein we stand. And that's what happens at salvation. When you get saved, you get access. You get grace. And you get a standing with God. You get peace with God. But then he says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So here's a process that follows the faith. And this process, is tribulation, patience, experience, hope. So as you go through the tribulation, first of all, you believe God. Let's let's get this down. Pay close attention. First, you believe God, what He said in the Bible. You believe that what He said is true no matter what. But then along comes the tribulation. And the tribulation that comes shakes your faith. And as your faith is shaken, you have a choice of how to respond. Are you going to hold on to what you know to be true in the Bible? Or are you going to throw up your hands and give up. If you hold on to what you know in the Bible is true, then that is patience. And that's what the Bible describes as patience. It says, you have seen the patience of Job. And it talks about Job going through his tribulation and refusing to believe anything but what God said, refusing to give up on God. He trusted God whenever his own wife told him, curse God and die. Job's children were dead. Everything he owned was stolen from him practically. And he was sitting on a trash pile, scraping pus out of his boils. His wife said, curse God and die. And he said, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? And the Bible says in all this, Job did not sin with his mouth. Job did not doubt God. He did not blaspheme God. He held true to the faith. And that faith going through tribulation, then uh, whenever you maintain your faith, is patience. And that patience works experience when you get through the trial. How many of you like it whenever you're sick? Nobody likes being sick. But how many of you like it when you get better? And once you get better, you're happy just to breathe without coughing, right? You're happy just to eat food without a stomach ache. Once you've been sick, it changes your perspective because of your experience. And this is a process of Christian growth that God puts us through. And that experience then gives us hope. That experience gives us something beyond faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Pay attention. Lord, help us today in Jesus' name. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. But hope is the rested, experiential, patient Faith that has been matured through tribulation. Do you hear me? Well, here's the Thessalonican church, and they basically were in such a condition. They had been going through the tribulation. They had been going through a tribulation there, and they had borne patiently through that tribulation. And after bearing patiently, they had gained they had gained experience, and their experience had wrought hope. But yet, in spite of the maturity of this church, in some cases far more mature than any church that I know of in America, this church here was told by Paul, there's something that lacks in your faith. You know, we are not just called to survive, we're called to advance. Jesus Christ said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And to advance, requires some maturity. Now the Apostle Paul had been through this process and he himself had gone through tribulation and he'd borne it patiently and gained experience and through that hope and that trial of his faith which was much more precious than of gold that perisheth he knew would redound to the glory of God and it had grown him and matured him but he knew that there had to be something more still yet than that. 
Now, there's an irony that in a church that is born in trouble, a church born in affliction and persecution will often escape a lot of the snares of a church that is not born in such circumstances. A church that is born in relative ease amongst people who are um, living peacefully and quietly will tend to have more problems with petty things like gossip and slander and stuff like that and all the little infighting. And a church in a persecution zone, a hot zone, a lot of times isn't going to struggle to the same degree as the other church. But in either case, everyone that's born again by the power of God needs to move beyond the babe the babe zone, the baby Christian area. You need to grow up. You can't stay a baby in the faith forever. You've got to move on. And that's where discipleship comes in. This is the need for discipleship. Go to 1 Peter 2. And verse 2, he says here, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. And he says to them, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. And that's a command. He's telling them to desire the newborn, the milk of the word. And that command will be obeyed by babes in Christ. Any baby that doesn't want milk dies. A baby can't live without eating, can it? <coughs> you can't either. A baby's got to eat. And so here he says, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The purpose is growth. God wants you in the word and he wants you in the word so that you can grow. How do you grow? Go to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. This sheds some more light on this thing. A babe in Christ is carnal. They think more with their flesh, with their intellect, than they do with their spirit. They think more with their emotions than their spirit. They think more with their will than their spirit. And this can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Now, I've already shown you here from 1 Thessalonians that this church was a persecuted church. They were a church on fire. They were a church that was in samples to all them at Macedonia and Achaia. And yet Paul said here, there's something lacking in your faith. He's basically telling them they're baby Christians. There's a martyr complex that goes around. That if I suffer for Christ, it makes me a super Christian. And it credentials me and gives me some kind of chip on my shoulder, some kind of red badge of courage that gives me the right to um, have a superior air. Okay? That's carnal. And that can come on a persecuted church. A church that's been born in trouble. A church that's had a lot of difficulty. A church that's going through tribulation. And they must have care to get in the Word of God and grow. Look at verse 2 here. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For where is, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and, see, and speak as men? And interestingly, this church in Corinth that's being told that they're carnal here. This church at Corinth was not persecuted, but this church at Corinth had a couple years with Paul, and they were still babes in Christ. They knew so much doctrine, it was insane. And they had all their favorite preachers, and they were carnal. Listen, we measure things the wrong way. You can listen to Oliver B. Green and J. Harold Smith and... Um, all the old preachers that you like. You can listen to Hans Wordvogel and Keith Daniel. You can you pick your preacher. You can listen to Leonard Ravenhill. You can go back and listen to any old preacher that you want. It don't make you spiritual. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of this denomination. I am of that denomination. Denominationalism's in Corinthians. It's carnality. You know what else is in Corinthians? They had all the gifts and they all fought over the gifts. Listen, if your emphasis and focus is on manifestation gifts, you're carnal. And then guess what they had in Corinth? They had dress standards. They had arguments about what kind of hat a woman ought to wear to be appropriate. 
Go and look it up. It talks all about the head covering. You know what else they had? They had a bunch of men that had hair problems. Because he had to tell them that a man with long hair, it's a shame to him. Now, I would say he was using that as an example and told them that the woman's hair is given to her for a covering there in 1 Corinthians. But there's all these problems, all these things, and all of this, maybe that's what Paul was saying here. I want to perfect something. I need some face time with you. I need to get in close. I need you to see my manner of life. I need some hands-on time. I need to walk with you and talk with you and work with you and sleep near you and spend some time with you guys because there's something lacking in your faith yeah you've been through a lot you've been through persecution you've been through separation you've been through isolation you've been through temptation you've stood for jesus your faith is sounded abroad throughout macedonia and achaia you're a flagship church but you're just a little babe church boy the way he said it you don't necessarily see this coming out because he's saying it in such loving terms and such gentle terms. But I'd like to dare anybody listening to this today or any other day to tell me that they are more spiritual than the Thessalonican church. And here Paul is saying there's something lacking concerning your faith. Now let's go over to 2 Peter. Second <coughs> Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long list. And that list starts with faith. Now, faith, again, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not, say, not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But faith is the beginning of a journey. Faith is the beginning of a process. Faith is the beginning of a growth. Now, faith in Jesus Christ, again, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are sealed with the spirit of promise. He says that... I know whom I have believed and that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It's arguable that if you, if you even wonder if you can lose salvation, it's arguable if you even understand salvation at all. Now, some people have been deceived, so I leave some room there. They've had people creep in and shake their faith, and they're struggling along limping with a little bit of faith. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ the way the Bible says to do it, not this one, two, three, pray after me stuff, but if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, you believe who He is, you turn to Him from your sin and trust Him for salvation, thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that's not what I'm talking about here. We're talking about the need for discipleship. So this is saved people going further. Faith is the beginning of a process of a Christian walk. Salvation is a moment. Salvation happens. It's like like a birth. The Bible calls it being born again. <coughs> Thank God you don't have to be half born for a year and a quarter born for a year and three quarter born for a year and seven eighths born for a year. Boy, that'd be awkward. That'd be a mess. Born is an instantaneous thing. Once it happens, it happens. There's a process to get up to born. But once you're born, you're born. And when you're born, you can't be unborn. You can be killed, but you can't be unborn. And Jesus said, he that believeth on me shall never taste death. So that eliminates being killed. That makes you absolutely invincible and the inheritor of a perfect promise of a perfect eternal life that cannot be taken from you. But once you start on that eternal life and you have faith in God, it starts you on a road of progress. Faith is the beginning. Jesus said, I am the door. <coughs> He said, if any man come up any other way, the same as a thief and a robber. We're not preaching on this section. We could. Look at this list again. 
And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. A lot of people trying to get saved by virtue. He says to your virtue, add to your virtue knowledge. A lot of people think that they can get saved by getting knowledge. You're a thief and a robber. You come up another way. You didn't start with faith. Some people think temperance, that comes next. I'll just be temperate. I'll deny myself. I'll get saved. And um, they're a thief and a robber. He says, add to temperance patience. Oh, if I'm patient enough, I'll be saved. To patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, charity. If I do enough good things, I'll get saved. No, it all starts at faith. The process starts at faith. Salvation starts at faith. And then there becomes a process of day-to-day sanctification of the believer. A separation of the believer from day to day. There is a a positional sanctification that takes place at salvation. There is a soulish sanctification that takes place at the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. And then there is a final bodily sanctification that we battle to live like we have that will take place when we die and have a new glorified body. And the old flesh nature is purged from us for the last time. Hallelujah and glory to God in the highest for that hope. But in the meantime... We are told to add to our faith all of these things. To add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say these things will make you saved. He didn't say these things will make you a um, superior Christian that gets to wear a badge of honor. So these things being in you and abound make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has to do with making you fruitful. And your growth, discipleship, is about making you fruitful. Discipleship is about teaching you the things that otherwise you have to learn through purging. Do you remember in John 15, or I can't remember if it was 16. I think it's John 15. He said, any branch in me that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. You're going to get that no matter what. If you're in Christ, you're going to be purged to bring forth more fruit. But discipleship can jump you ahead in that area. Discipleship can teach you to yield to the pruning hook. Discipleship can teach you to learn the lesson that God's teaching you the first time he purges. So that you don't try and regrow the same branch over and over and over and over again. So that God has to keep pruning and pruning and pruning and pruning the same branch off your life. Discipleship can save you a lot of pain. Discipleship can help you if it's godly, biblical discipleship. And here, discipleship can help you add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. And then this makes you fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the danger there in verse 9? If you do not add to your faith these things. This is what, this is, what is inspiring the Apostle Paul to, to pray exceedingly night and day that he might see their face and perfect that which lacketh concerning their faith. And that's not even a close paraphrase. <coughs> This is the inspiration that, gave, that Paul had for this text. The Holy Spirit giving him this burden is that if they have these things, they'll, be, they'll not be barren. But if they don't have these things, verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fail. So here Paul is telling them, this is for your good. I have some things I need to impart to you that will make you fruitful and protect you from barrenness and protect you from blindness and protect you from failing. It's possible to be an on fire church, a persecuted church and fail. By the way, what happened to the Moravians? Go back and look at the Moravians. The Moravian church is the church that God used to bring the light of the gospel 
to all of Europe and all of the Western nations, all of the, um, all of the nations with the European languages. God used the Moravian church and through their influence to carry the gospel into other lands that had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the whole world has been circled with the gospel through the influence of the Moravian church. Go back to the church in 1727 in Hernhut, Germany, and you'll find that. But if you look at the Moravian church today, it's not even a shadow of its former glory. What happened to them? They had faith and they had powerful faith, but they failed. They became blind, couldn't see afar off, forgot that they were purged of their old sins. And they didn't give diligence to make their calling and election sure. And they have failed. And the Moravian church, as far as my limited understanding of it, I should qualify it with that. Just from what I can see at looking at their denominational website and looking at statements from, and that kind of thing of them. And looking at what's coming out of them. It to all appearances, they have failed and are no longer even what would be considered by God a New Testament church. If I'm wrong about that, I want to be corrected, but I don't see the evidence of it in my limited perusal of their resources. God ultimately is the judge, not me. But what I'm saying is they have failed. The Methodists have failed. The Southern Baptists have failed. Group after group after group has failed. The Mennonite group has failed. Now, some people, you right there, you're ready to crucify me. I've, I've heard recently of a Mennonite church, and I've actually is something that is being said to be spreading throughout many Mennonite churches, um, a pro-transgenderism movement going through the churches. Uh, wear your bonnet and your cape dress and have transgenders in a bonnet and a cape dress. How about that? What have we fallen to? This is how it happens. It's a lack of truth, a lack of being grounded, established in the truth of God. He says, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fail. Now, um, the survival, a survival stagnates. When you get in survival mode, you stagnate. And in future generations, you become putrid and useless and lifeless. There are two seas in Israel, the Sea of Galilee and the water flows down into the Sea of Galilee from the rains. And then it flows out of the Sea of Galilee down the Jordan River to the second sea. The Sea of Galilee is full of fish. It's full of life. It has... Um, all kinds of flora and fauna all around its banks. And the Sea of Galilee is beautiful. But if you follow the Jordan River all the way down, the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea for a reason. It's full of salt. There's nothing growing around it. If, if anything, it'd be microscopic. There's hardly anything growing. Maybe some scrub brush here and there. <coughs> It's absolutely unlivable. No fish live in it and no water leaves it. It just sits there and it's constantly receiving and never giving. It's constantly getting blessed and never giving blessing. All that water from the beautiful life of the Sea of Galilee is flowing down into it, but it's not giving anything back to anywhere. It just sits there and stagnates and becomes more salty every year and it becomes more putrid and more smelly as the years go by. And that's what happens to you. If you get in the survival mode, I'm just going to endure to the end. By the way, this doctrine of endure to the end to keep your salvation, this is what it creates. It creates stagnant Dead Sea Christians if they have been born again and fall into this trap because they sit there and they begin to isolate themselves. Instead of having biblical separation where they are sanctified unto God, they have a unbiblical separation, which is an aversion to the world that causes them to hide and to recluse and to lose their light in the community because they're no longer willing to even be near the world. Instead of being persecuted for righteousness sake, they're just looked on as peculiar and basically left alone because they've isolated themselves and they're afraid of temptation and they don't want to any anywhere near them. And I don't blame them. I don't like temptation either. And if you get anywhere near the world, you will get tempted. I hate it. It stinks. <clears throat> but if you hide from the temptation instead of fleeing from temptation and standing for Christ, you'll stagnate. And these have stagnated. They've become survivalists. 
In future generations, they become useless. They become lifeless. This is what has happened to so many groups of Christians who have gotten the endure to the end mentality, who think that somehow they have to maintain their own personal righteousness in order to please God. And they've not added to their faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and on and on it goes. They haven't added to their faith. They have lacked the truth of the doctrines of the word of God and they've become they've stayed carnal and petty. By the way, a church that has a dress code where you have to meet all of these exact requirements to be a member is carnal. The emphasis is on the body. The emphasis is on the the outward appearance. Jesus talked about that all over the place. Now, the Bible does teach us to be modest, but whenever you have a whole book of rules that dictate what everybody has to do in order to fellowship with you, you've got to wear your hair this way. You've got to cut it that way. You've got to have a jumper down to here. You've got to have a cape dress. You've got to have a bonnet. You've got to have a shawl. You've got to, got to, got to. It's carnal. And these groups that get in this situation tend to stagnate. And by the way, these groups tend to come from persecuted churches like the church of Thessalonica. Churches born out of trouble. Churches born in affliction. But churches that began to rely on their affliction and their persecution and their church history of suffering as their badge of honor and their measure of spirituality and begin to think of themselves more highly than they ought because they have a heritage of suffering in their denomination and it leads to stagnation tepid useless lifeless stopped up as we go on lord willing in the next days pray for my cough we'll see three other things to be observed here in this chapter in discipleship in the next verse we'll see the providence and proximity of discipleship and look at that and then in the next verse that's verse 11 verse 12 we'll look at the produce of discipleship yeah apples and oranges kind of produce of discipleship, what's produced by discipleship, practical love for the brethren and the lost. Listen to me, if you don't have a practical love, a biblical love for the brethren and for the lost, then you are blind and cannot see afar off. You are living evidence that you've not added to your faith anything, if you're saved at all. And thirdly, in verse 13, we'll look at the purpose of discipleship, not intellectual refinement, but establishment in the faith, unblameable and in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Father, in Jesus name, I pray that you'd help us to apply this, help us to get a heart to learn, help us to humble ourselves, help us to be willing to be taught from your word, help us, Lord God, to be willing to be discipled and Lord God, give us good preachers and teachers to disciple us in the faith. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Help your church for Christ's sake. Amen.